0: I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate.
1: The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership.
0: I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. My name is Robbie Gupta, co-founder of the Arena, and today we talk to Jeremy Bird, who's the CEO and founding partner at 270 Strategies. Before 270, Jeremy was the national field director for the 2012 re-election campaign for President Barack Obama. He previously served in a number of senior roles on the 07 and 08 campaigns for Obama, including running the field program for South Carolina in that primary, and the, uh, field program for Ohio in the general election. Jeremy has a fascinating story. He grew up in small town, Missouri, in a trailer park. And he talks about his journey from that trailer park to some of the most influential rooms in American politics. Uh, so let's just jump in. Jeremy Bird, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. Hey, Ravi. Thanks for having me. Jeremy, so you have a super interesting uh, background growing up. You grew up in a, in a town, I think it's less than five hundred five thousand 5,000 people called High Ridge, Missouri. Uh, tell us about High Ridge and what it was like growing up there.
1: Yeah. So it's, um, it's like an exurb, um, of St. Louis. So it's about, you know, 40 minutes, 45 minute drive from St. Louis. Um, my parents got married when they were 16 and 17, had my brother and I grew up in a trailer park. Um, uh, on diamond drive in high Ridge, Missouri. And, um, I mean, it's a super interesting place. Um, you know, the tribe park I grew up in is, um, you know, predominantly Trump voters. Um, it's a, um, you know, it's, a uh, it's a, it's a great community in so many ways. I mean, people, you know, looked out for us as kids. I, you know, I'd play on the streets and, um, you know, uh, it was one of those places where, Um, when they, when we'd have tornado, uh, uh, warnings, we had, there was like one place in the whole trailer park that had concrete. And so you'd all go there together. Um, there was one bus stop where everybody went, you know, as kids, I would ride my bike. Um, you know, I think it was about 10 miles to get to like the closest grocery store. So I could buy a pack of baseball cards. And it was like up and down these crazy winding Hills. Um, but, um, it was a beautiful place. I think, you know, my parents got me when they were super young, um, you know, they were, I, I still vividly remember my father's 30th birthday. Um, cause I was like 11 years old at the time. And, um, uh, but it was like also a place of just surrounded by, uh, you know, a ton of love, um, very Christian, um, Southern Baptist family, um, where family was critical. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I learned a lot from, from, from that place is a huge part of who I am today.
0: And, you know, I grew up in Staten Island, New York around mostly Trump supporters too. And, you know, our country's only become more divided since you and I were back home living where we grew up. Uh, as you've watched, uh, you know, the ascendancy of Trump and, and an even more divisive politics, uh, and, you know, politics that in some ways is a repudiation of what you and I were all about, uh, and continue to be all about, but especially, you know, what we, what president Obama ran on in 07 and 08, uh, when you go back home, uh, what are your conversations like with people you grew up?
1: Yeah. So my, my family moved when I was in eighth grade, um, a little closer to St. Louis, but it's um, still in Jefferson County. Um, still really the exurbs of, um, of St. Louis. Um, but so the conversations I really have are really with my family. Um, my folks, um, friends from church. Um, and you know, it's, to me, it's always astonished me the, um, the success that Republicans have had in convincing, um, poor folks, um, that, um, somehow, uh, they're on their side, um, or, or that Democrats are not on their side. And the sort of, you know, the, what's the matter with Kansas kind of frame, I think they were very successful in, um, bunch of family members who, I think there's two main reasons why they, you know, mostly supported, um, the Republican party. And, um, not most of my family is with Trump, but, but still with Republicans before him. Uh, it's, it's really around social issues and predominantly around abortion as like the main driver, uh, and the thing that they can kind of, um, use to, um, uh, usurp all other things, <laughs> essentially all other moral things that are, you know, that, that, that are, um, wrong in a candidate, et cetera. They kind of use that as, as one big thing. And I think that's, that's been a big driver. Uh, and the second is, 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 um, around taxes and basically, you know, this belief that, um you know uh democrats are just going to tax you and republicans are somehow going to lower your taxes and that's what's most important um and i think you know those are the kind of conversations that are difficult to have because um you know it's been uh there's been a number of years that both right wing radio and a lot of the um uh, conservative um ability to get their message out with well funded you know groups like the koch brothers have really i think done a good job of um Really ingraining those issues in people's minds and, and creating some separation.
0: Yeah, and a, a big, uh, a big part of the arena community are people who are either running for office now or going to be running in the future. And you've spent a lot of time not only because of your parents but because of your education. You spent a lot of time thinking about religion. How sh- how can or should Democrats be reframing um, what it means to be a Christian or um, another person of faith? Uh, that could potentially appeal to voters who are voting uh, right now kind of on the, the single issue of abortion in some cases? Yeah.
1: I think the number one thing, and I, this is, I'd answer this with almost all questions, is authenticity. So, um, you know, it really matters who the candidate is. Um, I worked for Howard Dean in 2004. I had a great experience. Um, I never I never changed it. I learned a ton from that. But I remember at, the, at a debate in 2004 when he was asked what his favorite book in the new Testament was, and he said the book of Job, um, which for the readers that aren't familiar, it's in, it's in the old Testament. Um, and you know, it, but it just struck me as one of those moments where like you just have to be authentic. So if you're not a person of faith, don't try to be, um, but listen to people who are and understand where they're coming from, which I think is, you know, such a hugely important problem in our politics generally. If you are a person of faith, um, talk about your faith and the reason that it drives you to where it does. I mean, I, believe a lot of what I believe because of my background, if I really get to the core tenets of social justice, uh, you know, so much of what I read and was taught when I was growing up is about what you do for the least among uh, these, you know, is is what it's all about, right? And so when I think about possible, when I think about Republicans wanting to cut, you know, 20 to 30 to 40 million people off healthcare, that is not a Christian value. That is not a value of faith. When I think about um, you know, the way that they um, are scapegoating and, and and closing our borders and talking about building walls to keep immigrants out. You know, that couldn't be further from what you read in the Bible about welcoming all people in. Uh, it couldn't be further uh, from the faith that I was taught in, whether it was a vacation Bible school or Sunday school, or, you know, all of the different things. I, and so I think we have to hit those, you know, sh- you know, head on and not be afraid to talk about it because the democratic platform is such a platform of faith, whether you're, whether you're talking about the Jewish faith, the Christian faith, the Muslim faith, Buddhism, they're really about how do you love, how do you, how do you, um, you know, uh, create a society where, where people are taken care of, um, and so I think it's important for us not to run away from it because Republicans do not have a, uh, monopoly on faith. And in fact, so many of their policies, um, are against the very teachings of every major religion. And I think we have to talk about that.
0: Yeah. And I, and going back to, to your childhood, when did you know that a life in politics and organizing was in your future? Did you know it early, or was it later on in college? No, later on, yeah, definitely.
1: So I always say, I always joke that the only political thing that my family did growing up was sort of protest the adult video store they were trying to build at the end of the at the end of the block. We were not a political family, and my my dad was a Republican. Would sort of talk about it some, but it wasn't. It didn't drive a lot of discussion in our in our family, and it wasn't important to me necessarily. Although I, you know, I, I definitely was. Um, I, I was thinking about issues of fairness and justice, and how. I could have, you know, parents that are both working so hard and yet it feels like, um, you're always one step away from really needing either public assistance or family assistance. Um, and so I knew those things and, and I watched those things, but I didn't really get involved in politics until I was in, um, college actually. I went, I, uh, I was studying religion at Wabash college, a, a small school in, uh, the middle of nowhere, Indiana uh, Crawfordsville, Indiana. And a be- it's a, it's a beautiful campus and I a great education. And a big part of it was I got to go overseas. And so I went and studied in Israel and I was on a kibbutz for a while. And then I went to the university of Haifa and it was there that I went to my first political rally. Ehud Barak was running against, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu in 1999. Yeah.
0: And you would um, later,
1: later, uh, do some work on the opposite side of <laughs> it. <laughs> I did. Yeah. I, I, but I, but I went to this rally, and and. I had, you know, I had studied Hebrew for, you know, like two months. So I, I didn't really know what was going on at the, at the political rally on the campus. But what I felt was young people who passionately cared about what was happening in their politics. And it was the first time I really looked back and said, you know what? I don't even know who my governor is in Indiana where I'm going to school. It's not been a big part of my life at all. I need to, like, pay attention because it matters when I think about my family, it matters. Um, and so I was really inspired by that experience. Um, and I ended up, you know, coming back and, and really studying the role that religion plays in politics. And then ultimately led me to doing community organizing and then political work later.
0: And so was the Dean campaign, your first political campaign? Like, yeah. I mean, I staff? did. Yeah. The first, my first staffing.
1: Yeah. So I was, um, after I went to Harvard Divinity School, like I got my master's of theological studies and I was living in Boston. I was doing some um teaching at the Kennedy School and some other um fellowship work with a couple of human rights groups. And um I I got I was getting more and more frustrated with um the Bush administration when I was reading. Um I become much more um politically aware and much more convinced that progressive values were were my values and that I um wanted to be involved in politics. So I started doing some local volunteering, et cetera. Um, And then I heard Howard Dean speak at the um, uh, JFK Library in Boston. Uh, And at the same time, uh, one of my professors from the Kennedy School, a guy named Marshall Gans, had a relationship um, with a woman named Karen Hicks. They had known each other, worked together in the past, who was the state director in New Hampshire for Dean. And she had come to him and said, we're trying to do um, this differently. We're trying to basically run our campaign more like a community organizing approach than a traditional political approach. Who do you know who's in your in your orbit who um, would be interested in working on the campaign in New Hampshire? So um, I was teaching with him at the time and he um, immediately thought of me and connected us. And um, so, yeah, so that was my first paid position. I went up to New Hampshire and I was uh, essentially a deputy field director. I had, they called the congressional district director. So I had one of the two CDs in New Hampshire where I worked for about nine months and then worked in politics basically ever since. And
0: this idea of what it means to be, uh, to take a community organizing approach versus a, a strictly political approach in many ways defines almost a decade or more of, of your life. Uh, w- tell us a little bit about what that means for folks who, who don't really understand the difference between those two.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I'll give you the the Dean experience. So when they started in New Hampshire for Dean, they were, um, they hired a bunch of organizers um, and they, um, you know, used to call them field organizers or even in in some political campaigns, just canvassers. They would hire a bunch of folks, um, put those organizers on the doors or on the phones, calling voters um, to ask them who they were supporting. And then if they were supporting your candidate, you might ask them to volunteer. Um, And if they're not, you give them a sort of a script about why they should be I uh, market in the, in the voter file and then you move on. The problem with that approach is it doesn't create any local leadership. Um, you can only scale it as much as you can scale the number of paid staffers you can hire. And it's the least effective way of communicating because you basically, there's no relationship between the voter and the campaign, right? It's a very um, marketing driven kind of approach. So the, what we, what we did was say the goal uh, and the focus of our organizer Is to find, recruit, train, inspire and mobilize a volunteer leadership of people who are local, uh, who live in the community, who know their neighbors, who go to PTA meetings, who go to church with, who, you know, see them in other settings. Have those folks be the ones that are actually having the conversations with voters and to make those interactions as relational as possible, as meaningful as possible um, and as two way as possible. Um, And so the, 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 the goal of the organizer is to basically develop leadership. In others, uh, and really build that leadership up, and then those folks, when you're done with the campaign, um, are going to be the ones that run for office later. They're going to be the ones that run uh, the next campaign, and so it's just a different way of approaching uh, the same goal. And that ultimately, you still have the same goal: you want to talk to as many people as possible. You want to find out who's with you. You want to find out who's never going to be with you. You want to find out who's possible, uh, who's undecided, and then you know figure out who the most effective messenger is to those people to then bring them into your camp. Um, So that was kind of the big difference. Let me give you one more example of it to make it more real for folks. If you were, if you were a voter in Appalachia, Ohio in 2004, when you opened your door, the person that was there was either a volunteer, it was either a paid canvasser or a paid from act um, going way back or from the, from the Kerry campaign and they would knock on your door and they'd give you all the right reasons to vote for John Kerry. Uh, And then they would move on. When you opened your door in 2008, the order in Appalachia, the person at your door was somebody that you know from down the street who you trusted, or at least knew in some way, who was talking to you and asking you questions about uh, the, the election and why, why, where you were between um, uh, Barack Obama and, and John McCain. That person then came back two weeks later, four weeks later, Um, You saw the yard sign uh, that they had up and there was a real relationship that happened. That's the difference. The voter experience was one of a relational conversation with somebody from their community who had been trained um, as opposed to an outsider who was just coming and doing a very quick, got to go to this door then that door and just figure out where people are. Um, And that's the difference in what we were trying to create um, with the Obama campaign in 2008 and 2012.
0: And so, yes, so you landed as the state director of south carolina in the primary for the obama campaign well if
1: was, i was the field director or the organizing director so
0: you were yeah. in charge of field which i think mm-hmm. it, for folks who don't really know the distinction I, is it fair to say you know the, the sort of simplest explanation is there's kind of the world of persuasion versus the world of turnout um is how it used to be looked at uh and traditionally the world of field focuses a lot on turnout, but I think Obama, the Obama campaign per some of the things that you talked about started to blend these two. Um,
1: yeah, that's right. And so that's right. And I think
0: really, you know, credit to the the Bush campaign probably did this well too. the neighbor to neighbor piece that you're talking about. Um, tell us about the, there were differences between, the approaches in South Carolina versus New Hampshire and Iowa uh, and maybe Iowa and South Carolina are, are probably two informative examples where two successful field programs uh, and, you know, probably one of your best friends uh, ran that field program in in the caucus, but just, you know, kind of wildly different um, when you get into the weeds of them uh, approaches to uh, to field, or at least from my perspective. Um,
1: yeah, Yeah. Your, your, your first question or your first point about, um, the Bush campaign, one of the first books I read when I got to Ohio in um, 2008, um, was Carl Rhodes book, um, basically about how they organized. And, you know, there's been a ton, you know, people talk all about the gay marriage initiatives as kind of the driver of turnout in 2004. And I think there's some truth to, to some of them, some, some of what they did to sort of use social issues to drive turnout from, for a candidate who wasn't all that popular, but the thing that doesn't get talked about enough is the way in which they did real relational community organizing. Um, they mostly did it through existing organizations like the churches, um, as opposed to creating a ton of it on their own. But it was still a lot of the same principles with, in my mind with completely the wrong value set at the end and the wrong policy. Um, but there's a lot to learn from that. And so I think that's really important. And what you said, I think, is right, which is traditionally it had been thought of as like, um, Field or organizing or talking to people is kind of icing on the cake, um, and maybe it helps with turnout a little bit. Getting people who are already with you but um, are less likely to vote to actually get to the polls. Uh, what we what we fundamentally believed, and this came from Pluff all the way down in, in two thousand and eight, is it's not icing on the cake; it's part of the cake. Um, and if if you do it right, um, people are hearing on TV, in their mailbox, online at their office, at their door, on their phone, everywhere they go, they're hearing the same message. And it's the the combination of all of that that's having a real persuasive impact. Um, And that field can't be limited to the end of a campaign if you really want to be successful. Just from a logistical standpoint, if you wait till the end of the campaign for turnout, you don't know where people live. um, Because a lot of people we're trying to talk to are moving a lot. And so if you haven't had that conversation a year out, six months out, four months out, the likelihood you actually turn somebody out is low. But then the other impact is you can actually talk to people who are undecided and have a real meaningful conversation that they, and that might be the only meaningful conversation they have that entire election um, with a, with a person that's not coming from TV or some other kind of more one way communication. So we believe in that. And that—and that's what you saw in Iowa and you have to do it in Iowa. What Mitch did in the, in the program that they ran there with just an amazing, one of the most talented groups of organizers that ever has existed in politics was in Iowa and what they did was beautiful. And it's part because the caucus is so relational, right? You can't, you have to really train leadership because as a staffer, you can't be in that room, right? Unless you live there and you're in that caucus. So your job is to recruit a volunteer leadership team that goes into that caucus and is able to not only um, you know, state their preference for your candidate, but also get other people um, who don't pass the threshold and persuade them on board. So they did it beautifully. And and the antithesis of what honestly we did with the Dean campaign in 2004 in Iowa, um, which was much more mobilization as opposed to organizing. Um, and, and so that's where it sort of crumbled for the, on the Dean side, but where Obama did it really right was there. We were doing the same thing in South Carolina and and part because, um, we didn't have that many resources. So if we were going to scale and actually be able to play in the entire state and have a real impact, we had to have volunteer leadership and scale our organizers. Um, And we just believed that was fundamentally the right way to go. So we were doing very similar programs there. Buffy Wicks was doing a very similar program in California um, uh, for the Obama campaign. And when we all got to Chicago kind of after the primaries were starting to really close down, um, John Carson, who's one of the best leaders on the Obama, in the Obama orbit said, why don't you guys get together and figure out what you did in each of these states that worked? And let's then scale that nationally for the general election. So it wasn't like this ideology or this fundamentalism around you have to do it this way. It was like, hey, these things worked. Let's figure out what worked in each of these places. And how do we then replicate that?
0: In yeah, I, I saw it firsthand in Iowa. You know, I was sent down there for a few months, like uh, many of uh, the finance staff and other staff members. And I was... I was detailed to Fort Dodge, Iowa. And, you know, our mutual friend Joe Boswell was down there organizing. And it was amazing that the as I talked to voters, you know, I just go out every day, you know, from sun up to sundown, talking to voters in like Wright County, Iowa or something. And people there knew Joe like they had met him months before he'd been on the ground Mm -hmm. uh, for a, a for an extended period of time. And in many ways, it's crazy to say, but, you know, they'd been there long enough that some people were turning out just because of Joe uh, and his relationship. You know, these mm-hmm. people, you know, who like Ronnie Cho and Johanna, some of them are joining, you know, coaching Little League teams and, um, you know, yeah. hanging out and going to church and uh, making good friends in in the communities that they serve. And, uh, you know, and even though they didn't have the the neighborhood team model uh, that y'all had, um, they'd been around long enough, you know. Uh,
1: no, totally. Well, and if, the, um, if you Google, um, I'm here because of Ashley. Um, I remember Valerie Jarrett came to South Carolina. Um, and she was in, she went to just a local house meeting that we had in Ori County, which is up by Myrtle beach. And they, they were going around the room and talking about why people were there. And the, one of the older African-American gentlemen in the room said, I'm here because of Ashley and Ashley bio was his organizer. Um, and you saw that all over the place where people built, built real relationships. I always say to people, if you want to be, if you want to learn about America go to one of these early States and be an organizer in a program that does real organizing, you will know more people in that community after being there for six months than people who have lived there for 10 years, because your whole job is to meet people, develop relationships with them, find out what drives them. Yeah, and 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 so you really understand what's happening in that community, and it becomes something that really is helpful in terms of getting people to um, to participate in the electoral process. Yeah, I
0: think about it now. I, I give a lot of advice to. I sound old now, but uh, young people who are entering politics ask me advice on how to enter now, and. You know, I said to somebody You're the other day, because you are, old I know, now. you know, just funny, our friend Carolyn, Chris, Chris, I was talking to her this morning and she was like, we're old. Are, are we it now? She said to me, she's like, are we the, are we the leaders? <laughs> uh, but I give advice to people on how to enter campaigns. And I said to somebody the other day, I said, you know, being a field organizer on a great field campaign, like somebody who has a good theory of what it means to integrate a community is the best entry level job in politics. And being a field organizer in a turn and burn operation is the worst job in politics. And I totally agree. It really matters. And I think a lot of these campaigns that, you know, these congressional campaigns, Senate governors campaigns that are starting so early and starting to build field staff early, you know, it also is a lifestyle question, you know, that, the, we had no choice cause we were in a war of attrition. We were being sent state to state and you and I had some hilarious times in Philadelphia trying to hold the line against street money later on in that campaign. I remember, and you know, I won't, I won't name any names, but we had, we had a, a really hard time there with some of the local folks who, who expected cash on the streets, you know, uh, which is the, you know, antithesis of the neighborhood team model that we developed that you developed. Um, but, uh, I think that folks shouldn't be pushing their, their field organizers to, to be boiler room this early, like that, you know, like they should just be out there building relationships. And I I don't know how to articulate it in a way that doesn't sound soft, but what do you think about that? Like, what should a field, like what what should a field team be doing right now? Yeah.
1: No, you, you're um, well, you just said I think is so important because um, when I started doing this work, you know, there, there was this very macho dude culture in politics, especially in field. And you'd have the kind of, you know, field director, the, 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 the archetype of the field director was like some scary dude who would send out spreadsheets and just yell at you if you weren't hitting yeah, and your that numbers. Was the, that was
0: the rep um, of but we some, like, some corners of the Obama primary operation at certain points had that rep and they were almost universally not successful. Uh, well, uh, well, well and I think and I saw this really like in, in, in Oh four, even before is
1: you know, this, this, this sort of belief was like, you know, well, first of all, we were looking at the wrong numbers, right? Like the, if you're if you're a year out from the election, the number you shouldn't you should not be looking at is how many voters did you talk to today? Because people aren't tuned into the election. The numbers you want to be meticulous and dogged and focused on is how many volunteers are you recruiting today so that when people start paying attention, you can actually scale this. Are you weaving the net big enough that when people start really paying attention, you can catch them? So it, it, people, and the first instinct people have to say what, what I talked about on with the neighborhood team program or what you know you were just talking about is somehow soft or weak or isn't you know isn't numbers based. That's actually totally false. It's just different numbers, and you're looking at very different things. So we were very meticulous in a way, like in the general election. So we need, we were looking at how many volunteers, what percentage goal every organizer is by day, by week, by month, um, how many people they have in the pipeline because you don't get a volunteer leader until you have somebody that's getting tested to be a volunteer leader. Um, and so if your volunteer pipeline isn't big enough, you're never going to get there. So you have to look at that as well. Um, and then you start looking at, as you, as you ramp up, the number of voters you're talking to and are you persuading them, moving them, are having any impact. Um, and I think that, you know, that's critical is that it, this, 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 this system isn't soft. It's just different numbers at different times. Uh, and it's basically saying there's no way to scale this by just doing more calls from one person every day. That person has to you know, one organizer has to make themselves 10 organizers. Uh, And if you can do that across the state, all of a sudden you can scale a program and actually really get to, you know, at the end of the day where you're having tens of thousands of conversations every day. Um, And that's how you would
0: You know, you and I, you know, I met you first, I think in in South Carolina, but we worked together in Philly and in in Pennsylvania when you were helping to run the field program there during that primary, which was a slog. Uh, And it's really hard. I, I watched you struggle to build it you know it's really hard to build that neighborhood team model in a short period of time when you're sent somewhere yeah. basically to do cleanup which yeah. was essentially what everybody was doing there and then uh, and we were we were suffocating under the weight of some you know it was Reverend Wright it was this it was it was the uh, the the clinging to your guns it was one thing after another yeah we got, we got smashed. The bowling, yeah. um, and then uh, I mean, these all the, the, those things seem relatively small given what we're dealing with today. But it was real at the time, and everybody was exhausted. And then, and we and we, we had some funny moments negotiating on this the against the Philly, you know, put it lightly to Philly field culture. <laughs> uh, and then, but where I really saw you in action was in Ohio. So you know, as background, I. I was working for Axe, but I asked him permission to go down and do GOTV in Columbus, Franklin County. And that was the most sprawling, sophisticated political operation I'd seen to date. Um, walk us through, you're kind of, you're almost like a historian of of field, like the things that we called field. What What did we learn from South Carolina to the point where you're sitting in that basement at the Ohio Democratic Party office? in Columbus uh, and and how did that inform what we were doing out there?
1: Yeah, <clears throat> there's a couple of things that really uh, I thought were hugely important about the lessons from from South Carolina um, and many of them are cultural uh, and then others of them are tactical. On the cultural piece, I think the most important thing and this was true in the 2012 election as well is that the people running the organizing program have to fundamentally believe in relational organizing, in a a system that's based on volunteer leadership, um, and they have to be patient. Um, And if you don't believe in it, you're always going to shortcut it, and you're always going to just decide to cut the cord and go directly to voter contact from organizers directly talking to voters. Because early on, you're not seeing the volume that you need in terms of talking to voters. And you have to believe that if you do it right and you've seen it, that those volunteers will become leaders, will bring in other volunteers when people are really starting to pay attention and you'll be able to get to scale. Our regional directors and our organizers fundamentally believed in it because they'd seen it before. Um, They'd either seen it in Iowa, they'd seen it in South Carolina, they'd seen it somewhere else in the primaries. And so they knew ultimately what they were driving towards. Um, and, and in South Carolina, the way that we did that to people who hadn't seen it before, is we would do all these dry runs when there was a local election, like a, like a special election for a state Senate or something. We'd go and run GOTV, which is basically like, if you go to the last page in the book, you want to see what that's like. And so they needed to see what they were building towards in order to realize the scale of volunteer leadership they needed to actually get to that effort, you know. And so that was, I think, culturally this fundamental belief. And then, therefore, no one would cut corners or drop, you know, just sort of drop the idea um, halfway through. And I think that is so crucial from a cultural perspective. From a tactical perspective, we just learned a ton about how to test volunteers. you know, in the, th- the biggest mistake we made in Pennsylvania, because we only had eight weeks, we went in, we did our first kickoff, like hundreds of people came, and we basically said, who wants to be a volunteer leader and people who raised their hand just got appointed. That's a terrible idea, right? It's it's a terrible idea because the person that raises their hand is probably not the best leader. Um, not always, but, but probably not. Um, and that ended up being something we had to unwind. Right. And so we had a lot of people because we were sort of, we got a little impatient even though we had only had eight weeks, there was enough time to set it up, um, in a way that we could at least get, um, get to a better, get to a better place. So, so I think that was, those are, those are just a couple examples of of things that we learned, but I think the most important thing, um, is you got to believe in it and then you have to set up the metrics and the systems. Right. Uh, and we learned a ton about how to set that up in South Carolina about testing volunteers, having them go through a bunch of processes. Basically does somebody come in and show interest? Yes. Okay. That's good. Second, do they, are they able to bring others with them? Third, are they able to run something without the organizer? Uh, and then fourth, do they go through a training that basically, uh, and a commitment that they're making to the to the campaign, that they're going to be a, a leader on this and take it seriously? And I'll tell you the one thing that always struck me, uh, there's two things actually that struck me when I knew the program was successful. One, if your organizer could tell you about their volunteer leaders. And what I mean by that is, you know, if, Ravi, if you're my volunteer leader, I come in, and, and as a field director, and, and ask the organizer, tell me a little bit about Robbie. Tell, tell me about his family. If they could tell me something about him, I knew there was a real relationship. Um, and the more they yeah. could tell me, the better, right? Um, that, he wasn't—you weren't a number on a page. You were a person that they knew and they trusted, and they'd worked worked with before. Um, and so that was that was like kind of the the, the most critical piece. Um, and then you know, two had they had they actually proven. Uh, that they could do this. Had they run their own phone bank, had they um, brought other people together before? And if they could do that, um, you knew that you could scale the program. So those were a couple of the, the yeah, things it's, that It's done.
0: amazing now that I think about it, you know, we had, because that primary, it was so long. I feel like in many ways we had the, the, you gained like five, six times the amount of experience that somebody mm-hmm. normally would, because you went through election day so many times. So I, I, I had a chance to come in and out of field offices all over the country. And There's something beautiful about a well-run field office. So I think about that Fort Dodge office, you know, with Carolyn Chris and Joe Boswell and Fred Wong, Sarita Whedon. They knew, per your point, everything about people who walked through the door—where they lived, what their family dynamic was, what motivated them—and and you know, it, it, it people can get a little. It, it's almost like walking into like a high school cafeteria in some ways. Like there's a weird side of that too. Like people get on each other's nerves a little bit yeah. uh, when things get tough. But uh, but people they were deep. You know they they knew they knew a lot, and you know they still you know you still run into those folks. They still they still keep in touch. They still love the people that they organize with. So we're running, this is going to, we're going to have to do many parts of this conversation over the course of the eighteen cycle. Uh, and we haven't even gotten to 2012 yet. So we'll do that next time. But before we go, tell us, uh, you know, final question here is we have a lot of campaign managers and staff and, and uh, also candidates who are on local campaigns who basically operate as their managers. What's your biggest piece of advice in this new landscape for, campaigns just getting started, uh, for the 18 cycle, you know, outside everybody's talking about raising money, et cetera, but what is something that's not obvious right now that people should be keeping in mind as we head into this cycle? so many things.
1: Um, let me just give you a couple. Um, I think if the, the first, I, I mentioned this earlier when we were talking about, um, you know, earlier in the conversation, um, about religion and sort of how pol- you know, politicians talk about it. I mean, the number one piece of advice I give you is be authentic. Like, just don't try to be somebody you're not. Um, and you know, I think most people that I've met through, um, through you and the arena and as I've seen them are in this for the right reasons. Um, and they're not, um, they're not in it for, you know, the prestige and the power They're in meant to serve, um, be yourself, um, trust your gut and your instincts um, and be, you know, tell your story, um, and get out there and, and, uh, and, and make people see you who you really are. Um, now, of course you're going to be smart. You're going to, you're going to do your polling. You're going to listen to, you know, you're going to massage your message and, and, and work it in the right ways. But I think, you know, number one is be authentic. That's my kind of overall, overall message. But in terms of tactically, I think the thing that's changed the most since the, the conversation we've been having is, um there is no digital organizing and offline organizing or field organizing there's just organizing people just don't live their lives uh i don't wake up and say oh now i'm going to go online and talk to people on facebook or text and oh now i'm going to go offline and talk to them on the street like i just live my life and so when you're building your field programs or you're building your organizing programs um think about it holistically how do you communicate with people on email social text message on their doors, on their phones, in the mail, on TV, that entire thing is your communications plan to voters. And if you think about building your plan from the voters perspective, instead of your perspective, you'll build a great program. So what is that voters experience? The best technology that's built is based on user experience research and actually understanding how people are experiencing that technology. Same thing for campaigns. Stop thinking about it in a room full of, um, you know, political consultants and what you think works. Get out there talk to people, understand right. how they're experiencing your campaign uh, and then build it from their perspective and build your organizing program holistically, digitally, offline and all the other ways in which you're communicating and make sure all that is as integrated as possible. And is true. Well, to On that
0: note, we're going to have to have you back. We have so much more to talk about, but thank you so much for jumping on with us at this early stage in 18 and, uh, you know, plug for 270 strategies, uh, some of the best people out there uh, one of the most important firms, uh, I think you basically can do anything for a campaign at this point with the team that you have. And so if you're a campaign out there, you're looking for some some folks to help guide you through this process, uh, you can reach out to me uh, or you can uh, go straight to the 270 website and learn how you can get in touch. But thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, Robbie.